I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to The Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, folks. Uh, We are coming to you a little late. We're coming to you Thursday, July 22nd, for release next Monday, uh, which is actually kind of fun because that means we are now recording this post Bezos in space. Oh, that's so true. Because you know, normally we say Happy Monday, and we're recording on Monday. Um, at first, when you were saying that, I'm like, why do they care if we're recording this on Thursday versus Monday? But you're right, Bezos is back. I have loved loved my social media feeds the last few days because the Bezos heat is high. Uh-huh. And he basically thanked all of us for paying for his trip. Yeah. I really enjoyed that piece. That was probably one of my favorites. But I think it was matched pretty closely with him leaving the dick shuttle, putting on a cowboy hat, and then giving interviews with his watch over his fucking sleeve. <laughs> Like, what character are you playing, Scrooge McDuck? (laughs) I know. It's funny. He definitely was excited. Did you see the money he gave away post-flight? I did not. He gave $100 million each to Van Jones from CNN and a chef, Andre something. For what? Whatever. He said, you know, they might use it for charity, but it's their money now. They can use it for whatever they want. But what was the impetus? Like, what prompted? I'm, I'm guessing it was just, like, space adrenaline. Huh. Like, it, okay. it was genuinely in the press conference immediately following the shuttle return. I did hear him kind of double down on his uh, environmental focus his newfound environmental focus and wanting to protect this great earth of ours i wonder what the carbon footprint is of billionaires in space Mm-hmm. they asked that i heard them ask that yeah and like with all these because this is he uh equated this flight to um Oh, what did he say? Those planes, like the first planes mm-hmm. that were happening. And so give it time and pretty soon it's going to become super common. Just like we jump on a plane to go across the country, across the world. People will be jumping on these shuttles to go to space. And so there was a question asked about what the environmental impact is from each of these launches. Yeah. Um, They claimed that it was mostly like water and oxygen and so it was not overly detrimental to the environment but the person reporting on it did not sound like a scientist and I wasn't convinced I mean I'm no rocket scientist but me neither I'm pretty sure there is some sort of combustion happening that propels it into space I mean otherwise it's just like an oversized water soaker and that doesn't get you to space Mm. Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm I, I also enjoyed uh, some of the commentary um, prior to launch about um, could we just keep the billionaires up there? Could we like deny them reentry or charge like a reentry tax? I love that. That was so funny. <laughs> and then my favorite one was like, 
Jeff Bezos is so fucking smart that he kidnaps an 82-year-old astronaut to bring with him, so we have to let him back into Earth. <laughs> I know. And bless her heart, she seemed to – I mean, that truly seemed like a dream realized for her. Well, and I, I thought it was really interesting to kind of bring light to um, her story. I didn't realize how fucking sexist John Glenn was until this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's been waiting for that since, what, she was in her 20s? Something like that, yeah. So we'll, we'll say that that's the one silver lining. What a week. <laughs> I know. Huge, huge week for billionaires in space. Billionaires in space. And I'm sorry, that shuttle looked like a dick. Did nobody stop and say, is there any way we could make this look less phallic? <laughs> It was the most ridiculous design I've ever seen. It, you just can't make this shit up. God damn, no. <laughs> how was how has your week been? <laughs> shit. Mm. Uh, but, but, um, Brittany knows I'm going to complain about this because there's no way in my life I cannot complain about this. Uh, this week has just been nuts. Part of why we're recording Thursday is because I was too busy. I yeah. hoped we could get a, a normal recording in Monday. I was just not able to do that. Come to find out my cat is sick. And then yesterday, in the midst of Colorado summer heat, my fucking AC goes out. And I, I'm not somebody who, who handles heat well. I maybe had a full-on breakdown last night because a bee landed on my hand. I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. But it's not good at the Wasink House right now. Let me just tell you. I'm going to say Welcome. welcome coming from someone who lives in a colorado home that does not have central ac um i understand your pain i have been living in it uh productivity does drop dramatically just so you know Mm -hmm. uh napping increases oh something look forward to yeah yeah and i do notice that this is the first time um in a long time that I don't see you with a long sleeve. That's which true. I, which I thought was just mocking me. <laughs> well, normally the, the register is right next to my desk, and so it blows on my arms, and my arms get really cold. I bet they get cold. They get so icy. <laughs> Fuck off. Ne- <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I am dripping in different... Because especially where I record, which is in my office, it's the one room in my entire house that does not have an AC unit. And so I do have a fan behind me, but I turn that off while we're recording. So all you listeners at home don't hear that buzzing in the background. But see, here's the thing. You are, your home is now equipped for not having central air. Mine is not. We have no windows that accept uh, window units. Not mm-hmm. anywhere in the fucking house. We have one box fan that we pulled out of deep storage last night, like literally had to co- uncover the dust from it to put in a window so that we could maybe get some sleep. We have no other fans. We have no other coping for this. So as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to uh, relocate to our unfinished basement for the rest of the day. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Thank you. And how is well- your week going, Brittany? You know, it's going pretty well. It also has been super busy. I don't know what's going on right now in the cosmos, but it is a very hectic time. 
um, but exciting and all good things, um, and just looking forward to the weekend. You know, you said uh, what's happening in the cosmos, and it made me think. I am not one who really knows anything about astrology, mm-hmm. but does billionaires in space impact astrological readings and what we're experiencing here on Earth? <laughs> Well, this is the time of Leo, so it does not surprise me that this would be the time that billionaires would go into space. Okay, okay. Um, but as far as them impacting it, no. Okay. Even even billionaires can't impact that. Well, at least there's one little area that they can't try to uh, capitalize off of. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So what are we talking about today? Uh, This is another listener request. So just in case y'all are out there thinking we don't listen to you, we do. Um, Just sometimes we disregard your stupid ideas. Um, But this one, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, This one came from a listener, uh, Julia in Chicago. Shout out to you. She really enjoyed our episode on Amazon, but thought that we should balance it by talking about some of the good philanthropists. Uh, We spent a lot of time shitting on the bad ones, so what does good philanthropy look like? So Brittany and I independently each researched one, we're going to put them in quotes, good philanthropist. What if it's the same person? I think that is very unlikely. (laughs) Okay. Knowing who I chose. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, But we thought we'd just tell about our good philanthropist and have a little chat about them. We do share a philanthropy brain, though. (laughs) We I can't tell you how many times Nia and I are in conversations together and with somebody maybe giving fundraising advice and we just have the exact same thing to say at the exact same time. (laughs) It's a lot of, I was just going to say that. So. So Brittany, who you got for us? Well, do we want to like jump in to who the people are or do we want to kind of talk about uh, characteristics of what makes a good philanthropist? I'm guessing since you raised that question, you would like to start with characteristics (laughs) of good philanthropists. Well, and I don't think that this is a hard and fast list. Um, Mm -hmm. It's more of I'm curious of what you think, too. Um, You know, this kind of goes back to when we did the series about board members Mm -hmm. and we're like shitting on all these types of board (laughs) members. And then, you know, some of our friends were like, wait a minute, but there's good board members out there. We should talk about them, too. So it's so true. We should absolutely remember the other side of the coin. So Mm -hmm. this is the other side of the coin for philanthropists. So what do you think makes a good philanthropist? Oh, that's a good question. Um. I mean, obviously, there's definitely probably some benchmark threshold of giving percentage, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. are they actually giving generously? And that doesn't just mean dollar amounts, because we know, for instance, our buddy in space, uh, space astronaut, cowboy man, um, he can easily drop $200 million coming out of a spaceship, and that means absolutely nothing to him. So... I think there's like something about the ratio of giving, but also the ratio of giving during life. Yes. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's no magic number for that or magic ratio. But I do think, you know, when I was doing some research on this, I, I thought it was funny. Google, like, what makes a good philanthropist? And then <laughs> a lot of photos came up of people that I don't think are good philanthropists. So I'm like, <laughs> I can't trust that. 
But it came up about the difference between philanthropy and charity mm. of like really um, people who are invested in long-term giving. Yeah. So sustained giving uh, to really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't want to give away from, I, I don't want to say that spot giving, right? This crisis yeah. is happening. I give this one-time gift isn't important. But when we're talking about someone and really categorizing them as a philanthropist, yeah. mm-hmm. I think that there is some merit to are they giving over a period of time? Right. And mm-hmm. like a really, a commitment. Absolutely. Fully agree with that. I'm guessing there's probably something also about just how they live their lives. Um, like, mm. would you characterize them as good people? <laughs> Right? Like, are they actually living out the values that they're giving through their philanthropy in their own personal lives? Um, there were some names that came up when we were talking about this initially, like just big names in philanthropy. But then you look at what they do as a profession or some of their stances on things, and you're like, actually, they're not very good people. They just happen to have a lot of money and give some of it away. Or they're using their philanthropy to change their reputation. Or, ma- or I should say mask it, philanthropy mm-hmm. washing. Mm-hmm. And so I know that came up too around recognition. And yes. again, I'm trying to be fair. I, If somebody gives a ton of money, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be recognized for it. But when somebody, when that is the, um, the goal or the purpose of their giving, mm-hmm. that they are trying to use it as a PR stunt or to really try to change their public image um, because – because it's masking yeah like their their real true nature which isn't so great mm-hmm. um i think that that does not make for a good ph- philanthropist so someone who's really living their values um giving in accordance with their values and maybe they're recognized for it but maybe they're not they're not seeking out the recognition right to change their public image mm-hmm. yeah i think you're right like there's some folks who just by the nature of their careers Everything they do is public. And so saying that because they get recognition for their gifts, it somehow negates it. I, I think you're right. Like that, that's not it. But it's the ones who really seek it out or who only do it for the name recognition um, or the power that they get because of those gifts. Yeah. Um, see last week's episode on UNC, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there's something, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to um, – to put it into words, but I think there's something around, because I'm thinking about the person I'm going to talk to, talk about today, mm-hmm. who gives um, not just only in accordance with their values, but really as like, it's part of their passion, mm. right? It's not just kind of a new thing that they've jumped on. And again, I feel like I have to make a ton of disclaimers, not saying that if someone all of a sudden develops a new interest and wants to help fund it through their giving that that's a bad thing but um really seeing these people who have given um for a lifetime Mm. in multiple ways but all supporting kind of a central theme Mm -hmm. you know whether it's like animal conservation or whether it's the environment or whether it's children's you know uh funds that that support children and children's development or health or Mm -hmm. whatever that just seems very genuine. Yeah. 
right? Like this is a genuine connection that they have. And then also that difference between, um, because the person I'm going to talk about has really supported their hometown. Mm -hmm. And so giving locally as well as giving nationally and sometimes internationally and supporting also organizations that already exist. Yeah. Well, and I think that actually ties into my final thought on what makes a good philanthropist is how they give. So it's the stuff we always talk about. The contributions are unrestricted. Mm-hmm. They do not have overly burdensome processes to get the donation, whether it's because the philanthropist has like a formal foundation or just because of how they interact with organizations. They recognize the power dynamic between them as the philanthropist and the organizations as those providing service. Like a great example of this recently was the way Mackenzie Scott gave her m- money away. Mm-hmm. Um she did not make our list because all of that has basically been in the last 12 to 18 months. Yep. So she's she's becoming a better philanthropist. We're seeing that work, but she's not there yet. Like we yep. got we want to see that sustained giving like you were talking about where it's really becoming part of who they are um and not just kind of this drop in the bucket, you know, because we're in the middle of a crisis, I'm stepping up. Um, but right. anyway, the way she did it was really great, where she compiled a team of experts. They said, here are the organizations in closest proximity to the real issues, to the root causes. Give big to these ones. And that's exactly what she did. Yeah, I agree. All right. So I'm sure more of this will come up as we talk about our individuals that we chose. Mm-hmm. Um, so who'd you pick? Oh, you want me to go first? Oh, I can go first. Do you want I think me to you go should first? go first because I think folks are going to like yours better. <laughs> okay. So the, the philanthropist I chose is the one, the only, Ms. Dolly Parton. Dolly! Woohoo! Love Dolly. I know. Who doesn't love Dolly? I know. She's just the best. There's nothing about her music that doesn't make me just like smile. It's so true. And she's just so down to earth. Yeah. I heard an interview that she just did recently on Brene Brown's podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was just so fantastic. Like it just, I felt like I was sitting down and part of the conversation and that you know, I was like, oh, I have questions I want to ask her. And she just seemed relatable and um, and yet unbelievably smart. I mean, the oh way that she has yeah. built her brand and stayed true to her brand and has had integrity and the way that she treats her employees and her staff yeah. and, I mean, all of it. Totally. And her philanthropy goes beyond – or I should say her giving goes beyond just philanthropy. Like she makes business investments, but in the right places, Mm -hmm. like fucking vaccines. Exactly. Exactly. So I took a look at Dolly's philanthropy, and um, I'm not going to say that this is a comprehensive list. I might be missing some things. I'm sure. She's done so much. But we also don't have time for a comprehensive list. (laughs) So... (laughs) So I'll just kind of give the big central themes. But one thing that I think is really fascinating about Dolly is that um, she's been asked over and over why she never had kids. Mm. And her answer tends to be that it wasn't in God's plan. Mm. Um, 
But I looked and I found that um, she had a partial hysterectomy when she was in her 30s. Oh, wow. And so after that was not able to have kids. And it really makes sense then. I mean, not that this has to be the reason, but there's a real connection between that and her philanthropy. Because when you look, um, she really focuses on children. And um, a big one for her is children's literacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because her father never learned to read. Mm -hmm. And so this was really near and dearer to her heart. And so she did start back in 1988, the Dolly Parton Foundation, which was to help children achieve educational success. And then that morphed into what is more widely known now as the Imagination Library. Mm -hmm. And so um, in 1995, it's when it became the Imagination Library, and they started um, providing books, shipping books free to children who enrolled, who could enroll for free, from birth until their first year of school. Do you know anybody that did that? Yeah. You do? Uh, yeah, I told you. One of my friend's kids. It's like once a month they get a new book or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's amazing. It's amazing. I wish I, I didn't even know about it back then. I totally would have enrolled my kids. It's an awesome opportunity. Well, and it's such a smart concept. Like, who doesn't love getting mail? Even kids. And now the mail that they're getting is tied to reading. And so, like, you have now embedded this excitement in to reading. I mean, yes. I just – it's, like, so smart and amazing because it, it genuinely is. Any kid can register anywhere in the country and get it. And actually, it's global now. It's global? Holy shit. It's global. And so I don't know if – Every country is involved, but they did expand to Canada, Australia, the UK. Um, and so I should have jumped on there before I got on and, and seen kind of the latest. But I know that it went global and it started all of her kind of philanthropy really starts in her hometown of, I'm not going to say it right, Severe, Sevier, Severe. My French know. wants to come out, S E V I E R County in Tennessee. So she is very loyal to her hometown and has given back in multiple ways. And um, as far as the Imagination Library is concerned, they, in uh, 2018, celebrated their 100 millionth book sent. That's 100 million books. Isn't that, I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, that seriously is. Um, But she's had a lot of other programs, too, that are, you know, less known. Mm -hmm. I thought this was kind of interesting. So she noticed in in her hometown that there was um, a high dropout rate for high Mm -hmm. school students. Mm -hmm. So she created, this is back in the late 80s, early 90s, the Buddy Up program, where she um, had... Seventh and eighth grade students buddy up with somebody to kind of go through the high school experience with. And then if both of them graduated from high school, they got $500. Oh, my God. How which cool. You, I've which, never heard of that. Which you got to imagine that that's in the late 80s. So $500. It's a ton of – like you could buy a house with that. I don't know if you could go that far. <laughs> <laughs> it's the olden times, Mom. Olden times. But listen to this. This buddy up program in this one high school 
changed their dropout rate from 35% to 6%. Holy shit. That's incredible. Isn't that insane? I, I'm flabbergasted. Truly, that is amazing. I mean, organizations dream of having outcomes like that. And Dolly Parton was just like, hey, I know how to fix this. Boom. Exactly. And so <laughs> oh then she also offered um, those who were graduating from this high school and wanted to, to try to encourage them to attend the local college. Anybody who graduated and wanted to attend this specific college in town, um, she also gave $500 to every graduate that did that. Amazing. So I really love this kind of spectrum of all the way from birth to their first year of school and then she's helping you know middle schoolers buddy up and then high schoolers when they graduate um them you know moving on to college encouraging them to post-secondary some super random stuff which i just love is that in 1991 she created the eagle mountain sanctuary have you ever been to dollywood oh i most certainly have in pigeon forge tennessee (laughs) I have too. I mean, I think it's so funny that we've both been to Dollywood. Is that a Midwest thing? My grandparents live in Knoxville, which is like not even an hour away from Pigeon Forge. Yeah. Well, it was just two states over from me in Ohio. So, (laughs) we. How was your Dollywood experience? I don't remember a ton of it. I just have images of it. Um, But I remember it being fun. I mean, I was young. I was probably six, seven, eight years old, something like that, like around Mm. my kid's age. Um, And I just remember going to Pigeon Forge and um, I think we went to like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And just all these other kind of like cheesy vacation things, but it was such a fun vacation. What about for you? Uh, I think I was probably a similar age, maybe slightly older, like nine, 10, but still very young. So I don't remember a lot of it, but uh, except for one very important thing, my grandfather and I went on uh, one of the little roller coasters and it broke down midway (gasps) and it was at a point where we were at. And aren't they wooden? Oh yeah. Old school wooden. They're old school wooden. I remember them. Yes. And so our our little cart on the the track was at like a 45 to 90 degree angle. Stop it. And we were stuck there. In my memory, it was like hours. I doubt that was reality because I don't think we would have lasted that long. But I just remember thinking, this is how we die. Grandpa and I are going to die here (laughs) on this roller coaster. Dolly would not let that happen at Dollywood. She did not. No, she came in and saved us. I met her. No, I did not. None of that happened. That's terrifying. Did that impact your use of roller coasters for the rest of your life? You know, it's funny you say that. I don't like roller coasters. I don't go on them. Maybe it did. I feel like we just had a breakthrough right here. I'm going to call my therapist. And wear that fear. (laughs) (laughs) The source of that fear. Uh, well, so in Dollywood, to bring it back to her philanthropy, <laughs> I don't remember this. Um, well, frankly, it would have happened after I'd been there because I was just kind of doing the math and the years. So in 1991, she created the Eagle Mountain Sanctuary. It's a 30,000 square foot aviary oh that God. houses 
bald eagles that have been injured and cannot be released into oh. the wild. Oh, that's amazing. I know. Is it? Oh, I mean, it's so golly. random. Wow. So random. Uh, so patriotic. <laughs> and then um, she continued to give to that local high school, giving more and more scholarships uh, for students that were graduating and going on to college. Um, she even acknowledged teachers and mm. she did this thing called Chasing Rainbows where teachers that had overcome a hardship, they mm. won a week free at Dollywood. Oh my God. Is that actually a treat for teachers? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. awful. This was in 2002. Um, and then um, there was, I think it's interesting, there were... Um, a hospital needed funding. So uh, a local Sevier County, if I'm saying that correctly, hospital needed help raising money. And so she came in and not only pledged her own money from Dollywood and from Dixie Stampede. Have you been to that? Of course. Duh. Me too. Me too. Um, but she was part of the one doing the fundraising and trying to get the money and she put a match up to it. And then even um, continue that at Vanderbilt Medical Center, she had a family member who, I think it was a niece, who ended up um, being at the hospital. And so um, because of her care and seeing the need at the hospital, she donated in 2017 a million dollars wow. for the Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Um, and then lastly, again, this kind of spot care, I shouldn't say lastly, uh, there were some fires that went oh, through yeah. the Smoky Mountains and mm -hmm. devastated uh, the area around where she's from. And so she gave $1,000 per month for six months to families who lost their homes in the fire. Yeah. I remember reading about that. That was incredible. And then also helped with college scholarships for those that were affected by the fire, which is amazing. Wow. So like we talked about with her giving, what I love about it is that she stayed true to her roots. She definitely was didn't forget about her, um, her own community. She has created these programs that now have benefited kids all over the world. Um, and then she's done this spot care. So she's had that like sustained giving, that sustained uh, philanthropy, and then that spot giving at times of crisis. Um, and even then, like $1,000 over six months for those who have lost their home, I thought was such a smart way of doing it to, you know, give them kind of some sustained income for a while until they could get back on their feet and, you know, maybe get insurance money or whatnot. Um, and then um, bald eagles. How could somebody who loves Americana as much as you not choose Dolly Parton? I know, right? <laughs> she embodies it all. And yet she has a very deep, like, spiritualness about her that I just love. And so, I mean, she really is kind of Your one hero. of my idols. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> and there it is. Oh, Dolly Parton. Okay, she makes our top two list of good philanthropists. Woohoo! You ready All for right. mine? I can't wait. I can't wait. Are you familiar with Chuck Feeney? No. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I knew we would never have the same one. 
Okay, so uh, quick backstory on this um, because I was actually really thrilled to be able to tie this all in. So I went to grad school for nonprofit management and uh, we had these options for like your final thesis or project. Um, and one of the options was actually to take a big trip and learn about NGOs outside of the US. So I spent three weeks in Ireland, got to visit with organizations both from the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, and then we had to do one of two things, either pick a specific NGO and help them with an issue. Um, so like a lot of people went in and made fundraising plans or helped them get on Facebook or because this was, you know, 10 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, help their board with something or kind of do a reflection research paper on a bigger issue. So that's what I chose because every single organization we visited in Ireland was panicking because they were about to lose one of their major sources of income through Atlantic Philanthropies. Okay. So Chuck Feeney is the co-founder of Duty Free Shoppers. Like duty free like in the airports? Yep, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, he became a billionaire, lived incredibly frugally. Um, some people called it monk-like. Like you would go to his apartment and it would just have like Xerox copied family photos on the wall and like oh. one single couch and it was like the size of a dorm room. So just lived very simply and created Atlantic Philanthropies. Okay. So he puts billions and billions of dollars into it, um, kept most of the gifts pretty secretively. Um, like most people don't know that he is the man behind Atlantic Philanthropies until the last 10 years as it got prepared to ramp down. Um, and his whole thing was giving while living. Oh. He was the one who kind of pioneered that concept um, and said very publicly, I want to give it away while I'm still alive um, to the issues that are impacting our world today. And so he gave away over $8 billion worldwide Holy through cow. Atlantic Philanthropies, right? Huge. Yes. Um, at... The time that he closed down Atlantic Philanthropies, he was worth less than $2 million, which means he gave away 375,000% of his net worth. Wow. Right? Can you imagine? I know. I get kind of chills thinking about I know. Like that, that level of generosity. Um, he was the one who pushed Gates and Buffett into creating the Giving Pledge. All right. Um, but... His whole point was, I want this to happen while I'm alive, right? Like, Atlantic Philanthropies is not going to continue in perpetuity. So about 10 years ago, he started saying, like, the ramp down has begun. Mm -hmm. So when I was visiting Ireland, they were, like, seven years out from it closing. But, and as we've talked about on the show, every, like, philanthropic landscape is very different depending on the country and their tax structure. So Ireland, the Republic especially, has a very robust tax structure that funnels funds into nonprofits. There were plenty of organizations we visited where literally half of their money came from Atlantic Philanthropies and half came from the government. Oh, wow. So they were freaking the fuck out. Yeah. Uh, there were so many who like had never created a fundraising plan, had no fundraising staff because it had just genuinely never been a thing. And Atlantic Philanthropies was around for 40 years. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was very open and honest about, like, that ramp down. 
and allowing organizations to prep. Like this wasn't, we're going to give you a grant this year and not next year, right? He gave them five, 10 years notice so that they could really start investing. Yeah. So for a lot of these organizations, they had to fundraise for the first time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So in uh, September of 2018, they closed their Dublin office, which was the last one in Ireland. They had had a Belfast Belfast office in Northern Ireland that closed earlier. But in that period from when they announced, you know, we're going to close however many years from now till 2018, they worked very diligently to ramp up government support of these organizations and to help them develop additional infrastructure around fundraising. So, um, and this was part of their values anyways, like Atlantic philanthropies would often come in and try to match their giving to government funds, like always wanting to leverage it or kind of be that conveners for additional collaboration for the organization. Sure. Um, And so in that wind down period, Atlantic Philanthropies used their position at the table to bring the government entities closer, bring the organizations into those discussions and try to help kind of um, with that transition and, and ensure that they had support. What I was reading since the closure is that the results were kind of mixed. You know, some organizations just weren't able to ramp up the fundraising they needed and programs have shuttered um, and others have had the opposite. They really used that time to develop fundraising infrastructure, to um, create broader community buy-in, to find additional um, external grants and they're thriving. So I got to say though, as a big philanthropist, it sounds like they did it the best way they possibly could. Yep. And so I certainly don't blame Atlantic philanthropies for this whatsoever, but um it was just really interesting to hear about Chuck and and the way he engaged with these organizations in such like a selfless manner. He had a massive staff at the foundation. So they gave out over $8 billion in grants, but he had a staff at one point of 300. Whoa. So you know he was funneling a lot more money into this, this foundation in right. order to make all these grants. And they were big investments. Um, so just on the island of Ireland – he gave 1.1 billion euros. Wow. And I'm curious, did they fund only uh, a specific funding focus? A little bit of everything. So mostly organizations we met with um, when I was there were um, like social justice, human rights, but also arts and health. And um, he gave a lot to universities as well. Um, so it really, it was across the board. Um and he had uh, local offices in the primary countries that they funded so that they could have local representation to come back to the worldwide board and say, like, here's what's happening in Belfast right now. Here's right. What, what is needed by the community. He didn't want it just like a centralized U.S.-based staff trying to assume what was needed elsewhere in the world. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, and the Tide Island, um, he... He's Irish-American. He was born in New Jersey, but still felt very tied to Ireland. Um, supported a lot of the peace talks um, and mm-hmm. peacemaking organizations um, in the, the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so, you know, f- still felt real tied to those roots, even though he was born in America. That's so great. I know. I had so no idea. To, to come full circle <clears throat> on this, because I had kind of forgotten. I tried to find my initial paper from grad school, which – is always just embarrassing, like looking back at your writing from a decade ago and you're like, I oh know. my God, I knew nothing. Um, but you but thought you knew it. everything. Right. Oh my God. I was living high. I was about to graduate from my with my master's. Right. I know everything. Yeah. You were a scholar. So. <laughs> I was a scholar. 
that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. You know, how many times have I gone to a duty-free shop and I never, like, it never occurred to me that someone created those. And Right. Yeah. I, just, I had no idea duty-free shops were so lucrative for the founders. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> well, this has been so much, so fun. And I would love to hear from anyone who's listening if they have a philanthropist they want to recommend. Mm, for oh, that would be fun. For this, like, title of good philanthropist. <laughs> we will now be sending Chuck and Polly an official <clears throat> certificate from the nonprofit reframe. You are good philanthropists. Yes, exactly. They get our stamp of approval. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I would love to hear from all of you. I mean, do you know of someone? Maybe it's someone we all know, like Dolly. Maybe it's someone we don't know, like Chuck. But that you believe um, personifies, you know, what makes a great philanthropist and then maybe a couple of reasons why. And then, you know, I would be happy to go in and do some research and find more information about them. But then it would be fun to present those on a future episode. I love it. That sounds great. You can give us that information by emailing emailing us. Emailing us at nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. You can also make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram, which have for the foreseeable future been turned into Jeff Bezos hate accounts, but eventually <laughs> we'll come back to podcast content. <laughs> and it's not too late for you to become a good philanthropist. It doesn't mean that you have to give away billions of dollars. Um, it just means that you have to support your local nonprofits by giving and giving generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much.